Good morning once again. I want to invite you to your seats again. If you have your Bible, you can get it out now. Um, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. We have the scripture printed for you in the bulletin. There's also a sermon notes page that you can have. Sometimes I have an outline. Um, sometimes I don't. Today we don't have an outline. I have an outline, but I just didn't get it into the um, uh, bulletin so that you can take notes. But, you know, I like to take notes. I like to follow along. If you want to, the, the three would be Jesus is, fill in the blank, Jesus is, fill in the blank, Jesus is, right? Um, so if you want to know, that's the outline. This morning, we're looking at John chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. John chapter 21 is the last chapter in the gospel of John. For those of you that aren't familiar with the term gospel, the gospels are the four stories that are in the Bible that characterize the life of Jesus. And so the book of John is one of the four gospels, and this is the last chapter in the book of John. And it's a really, really fascinating uh, passage of scripture. And if you want to know the title of the, today's message, because I think the title always helps me think about what are we, we going to talk about, the title of this morning's message is, I Believe in the Church. I Believe in the Church. So John chapter 21 Verses 1 through 14, if you have your Bible, you can follow along with me, and those that don't, you have it in the bulletin. Hear the reading of God's word. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire, burning, fire of burning coals there with the fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In 2014, Marsh Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, which was led by Mark Driscoll, was one of the largest churches in the whole United States. On average, a daily Sunday, a typical Sunday, 12,000 people would come to this church. Driscoll was a well-known, sought-out speaker and communicator, though he was brash. That brashness, though, was refreshing for many who came to the church. But the brashness was also dripping with arrogance. He spoke strongly to men who were being lazy and licentious. It meant a lot to them. But by the beginning of 2015, this large church, this institution that had significant impact in men and women no longer existed. Ultimately, I could say there's a number of reasons, but I would say most of it revolved around Driscoll's arrogance and his brash style of leadership. 
Recently, Christianity Today released a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. This podcast looks at the way that the church came to be and the way that it ended. It's filled with all sorts of cultural insights that I highly recommend you listening to, especially as it pertains to the church. But one of the sad realities that I've experienced in listening to this podcast is the unique situation with a unique... In Sorry. That there are churches all over the place that fall into the same situation that this church has come into. Brash, arrogant leaders, failures of morality in the leadership of the church. It's like the truth of what Mahatma Gandhi said when he was asked about Christianity. He says, I like your savior, but I don't like your people. This podcast is just bringing that up time and time again. Man, the church, I just don't like the church. I don't even believe in the church. Perhaps you're tired of the church yourself, tired of narcissistic leaders getting in front of the pulpit, telling you what you can and can't do, you know, organizations that feel so stuffy and, you know, authoritative. But is this a legitimate and God-given sentiment to say, you know, with all of that, I'm going to pull away from the church. Sadly, this is a reality in our world. Um, the research group Barna said that 30% of church-going people will not attend a service again once the pandemic is over. That the church, the idea that the church, this authoritative looking down on you, 30% of the people that were in a church aren't going to go back to church once the pandemic is over. I mean, this has taken place time and time again. You see um, the Catholic Church with, with their cover-ups, and that's, that's, not just, that's just one example. It, it is so hard to say, you know what? I believe in the church. Do you believe in the church? You have a lot of examples to not believe in the church. I'm telling you. Uh, I know some of your stories, and there are a lot of reasons for you to say, I don't believe in the church. But here's the thing about John 21. I think John 21, at the end of the day, Jesus will look at us and say, believe in the church. We are called to believe in the church. Now, why and how is John 21 at all connected to the church? It's a story about the disciples going fishing and Jesus hollering at them on the side of the shores, hey, did you catch anything? No, we didn't catch anything. All right, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. So they do it. They catch all these fish. Again, how is this at all about the church? Now, when the disciples realized it was Jesus, or at least Peter did, or John, and then he told it's Jesus, he jumped out of the boat and goes to Jesus, and, and then all the disciples come and they eat. How, again, is this at all about the church? Well, there are important literary characteristics that the author of this book has written into it that indicate to us that the story is ultimately about the church. Let me, let, me, let me tell you why. First, we have to consider where this story comes in the entirety of the book of John. It's John chapter 21. I told you at the beginning, it's the last chapter of this book. Jesus has been resurrected, and he's already appeared to the disciples two different times, and now this is the third time. So you have the location of it. There is something significant about the ending of a story, something significant that tells you there is something coming on later on. And what I'm telling you is that something is the church because you have the disciples. Secondly, the imagery. 
the imagery of this story. Now, the book of John is filled with all sorts of fascinating imagery. The first chapter talks about light and darkness. Chapter 6 talks about Jesus' body being uh, eaten and consumed and his blood being drank. Chapter 15 talks about Jesus being the vine and you being the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, Jesus says. So you have all this imagery. And once again, in John chapter 21, you have this imagery. And the imagery we have in John chapter 21 is of the disciples fishing. Now, if you know anything about this particular story, you know that there's a parallel story in the life of the disciples. Luke chapter 5, the disciples are fishing and Jesus comes to them. And they weren't catching fish that one night. And Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. They did, and they got a big haul of fish. And do you remember what Jesus tells the disciples? Come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It's why John in this story knows that it's Jesus because he remembers that story that had taken place. So this, this imagery before us of this making disciples of men is right before us once again. And it's John's unique way, his imagery that he's giving to us saying, this is the mission that I'm giving to you disciples to pursue, to make fishers of men. Finally, Jesus welcomes them onto the shore. It's this fascinating story. You see, this is a story that John writes in that from its location and its imagery about the church. It's how the church is to operate. It's how the church is to think of itself. It's how the church should believe in the church. Now, there's three important characteristics of why it's important we believe in the church from this text. It's a story about the church, but there's three important characteristics of why we believe in the church, and that's this. Jesus is present. Jesus is uniquely present with the church. Secondly, Jesus is leading the church, and thirdly, Jesus is feeding the church. So Jesus is uniquely present, Jesus is leading the church, and Jesus is feeding the church. If you want to know why to believe in the church, why John 21 focuses and tells us to believe in the church, it's for these three reasons. But let's study these three reasons. Why do we believe in the church? Well, first, because Jesus is present. Jesus is uniquely present. Look again at verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore while the disciples were fishing, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? So in the midst of this unique metaphor, the disciples fishing, a metaphor that is parallel to the church, there is Jesus on the shore, present with his disciples. He's calling out and wondering if they had caught any fish. It's a simple picture, but it's a simple picture that speaks to the reality that Jesus is present and uniquely present with, his, with the church in its labors. Look, modern Christendom has done a wonderful job of emphasizing the individualistic nature of the Christian faith. Christ in you, we repent of our sins, not our sins of our neighbor. We repent of our sins, and we trust in Jesus, not we can't trust for our neighbors. The Holy Spirit comes into our life, and we become the very temple of the living God. We can commune with God at any minute. This, of course, is in contrast to the, the way that church used to be, where there was more, much more communal in nature. And I think the Protestant Reformation had done a great job of focusing and helping us consider the individualistic nature. But in embracing this individualistic nature, 
we lose something very significant about the communal nature of the church. Let me, let me give you an example of this. In, in a similar study that I read about 30% of the cheap people leaving the church, I also read that almost 40% of church-going Christians, 40% of like people that go to church every week, go to a different church every week. What this tells me is that people are looking for the best music, the best communication. They're not looking to engage in the community aspect. Church becomes about me being motivated, being tickled, Hearing the best music, that's what it tells me. It's all individualistic, or at least not everyone. 60% still goes to one church. But, but here's the thing. When you, when you were bouncing around to different churches like that, and I'm not saying you can look for churches, but continually bouncing around different churches, you're missing the uniqueness, the unique presence of Jesus that exists in each and every church. Here's what I mean. There's an example. There, there, literally, <laughs> we are given the names of several people on the boat. And I don't think that that's a mistake. And what these names, I think, show us is that Jesus is present in all his people's stories. So, so we've got the name of Simon Peter. We've got the name of Thomas and Nathaniel. And we've got the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples. But I just want to focus on Simon Peter Thomas and Nathaniel, three names. Now, those three names are significant in the book of John. Now, Simon Peter, think about Simon Peter. If we were to pull Simon Peter up and we'd say, Peter, how has Jesus been a part of your life? He would say, let me tell you something. I denied Jesus three times. I told him that I would go to my death defending him, but when push came to shove, I abandoned him. I was a traitor. And you know what Jesus did to me? He moved to me in the midst of trading, my, my traitor. I, I'm a traitor, but he moved towards me, and he forgave me. You know, what a profound story that we would miss if, if it was just about us. Think about Thomas. You know Thomas? Doubting Thomas. We call Thomas the doubtful one. Uh, Richard Lovelace, a scholar, calls him substitious. Not superstitious, substitious, that he won't believe unless he puts his hands in Jesus' nail-scarred hands. Perhaps you're like him. I can't believe. But you know what? Thomas has a story that maybe you can relate to. Thomas has a story that would be a benefit to many other people. You know what? I doubted. But Jesus showed up in profound ways and showing me himself in his resurrected state. Then you had Nathaniel. Now, many of us don't know the story of Nathaniel, but in John chapter 1, John tells us about Nathaniel. And Nathaniel is sitting under a fig tree, and his brother comes to him. He says, the Lord has come. And he said, he was sitting, you were sitting under a fig tree, and he was astounded that Jesus would know that he was sitting under a fig tree. If Thomas was substitious, you know, didn't, you know, he had to see to believe, Nathaniel's superstitious. Jesus was even rebuking him. He's like, listen, if you think it's amazing that I saw you under the fig tree, just buckle up, buddy. It's about to get real. You're going to see things that are going to blow your mind. You have the uniqueness of people on the boat. You have stories of how Jesus has met individuals on the boat. And it's profound reality. It's much bigger than your salvation stories. This is not to make light of your salvation stories, whatever it might be. But in the church, Jesus is uniquely present in so many different beautiful ways. 
And if we are disconnected from the church, we miss out on that. We miss out on his unique presence. I, 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 the, the last, uh, and I'm in the midst of this right now, I, I, I'm following up on our Central 201. It's a chance for me to connect with many of you about your faith and about how God has worked. And let me just tell you, it is one of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor. And the reason that I get to do, why it's so great for me is I get to hear how God has uniquely worked in your life. And God has worked differently in each and every one of you. And it is so beautiful for me to see how Jesus is uniquely present in all of your lives and in different ways. But yet if we, if we disconnect from the church, we disconnect from that unique presence that Jesus has, has had for us. So we gather together because Jesus is uniquely present. I could go on. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll mention one last thing, that when we disconnect from the church and we bounce around and we, we don't believe in the church and we give up to it, we actually miss out on Jesus' unique presence in the people's gifts of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11 says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. There is not one gift in the church. And Jesus is uniquely present in different ways through you and through me and the gifts that he has given through his spirit. When we, when we attend Bedside Baptist continually or Pillowside Prez, we are missing out on the gifts that the Spirit is working in each and every one of us. Jesus is uniquely present in each and every one of you. Friends, believe in the church, not because it's perfect, but because Jesus is here. He is here with us. He is present. Don't give up on the church. Believe in the church because Jesus is present. But there's a second reason why we don't give up on the church and that we believe in the church. It's because Jesus is continuing to lead. He continues to lead. The resurrected Jesus in verse 6 tells the disciples and he leads them to the fish that are in the sea. Verse 6, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. The resurrection Jesus we see in this, the one who died and is risen and is not dying again is still leading and directing the disciples and they cannot contain the number of fish that Jesus has led them to. This small metaphor carries a significant metaphor message for the church. I'm still here. I'm still leading. Who do you view as the leader of the church? Who do you view as the leader of the church? Now, it's funny, I had, a, I had one of those uh, meetings with um, one of our children in the church last night, and I asked them this question. And where I was ultimately trying to go was, I, I'm trying to get them to point, like, okay, I listen to the pastor, I do, that, this is what I said, and I said, who leads the church? And this is where I'm going in my mind, I'm the pastor, like, I'm, I'm the leader of this church. And this sweet little girl actually answered perfectly, God. God is the one in control. And I was like, dang it, she's right. <laughs> All right, what I meant is, who has God put in authority of the church? And so followed up with that. But she's right. You know, we, we practically think that it's people like me 
even I fall into that. People like the pastors are in charge. The Pope's in charge. The Anglicans look to the Queen of England. Baptist, Presbyterians, non-denominationals, Methodists look to those who, are, who have the biggest following. But the reality in each of these cases, all of our cases, is this. Those people aren't in charge. It's Jesus that continues to lead his church. It is Jesus through his word that guides and directs his church towards its mission. He leads by his word through the Holy Scriptures, the Old and New Testament. And this word gives us significant ramifications for our lives and for the church moving forward. Matthew 28, Jesus, as he's ascending and he's preparing to go, looks at his church, his disciples. And you know what he does? He does what any good leader does. He gives them a mission. The church is to pursue that mission. Matthew 28, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you to. It's Jesus' word giving the church a clear mission to pursue. He's still leading the church. That mission is still our mission. But he also, with his word, has given the church a special authority we go back to that story with the little girl that I had. Yes, there is a sense that the, the church has individuals who have been given the authority. It is an authority that is under the authority of Jesus and his word, but it nevertheless is an authority. Matthew 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. It's an authoritative purpose. And so Jesus says, there is a church, and there are people that need to discern Who's in and who's out? Not that they're the final say in that, but they need to be the ones that do this. It's his word that guides us and directs us in that purpose. So the church is to be driven. It is to be organized. And, and it is, is his word for how we organize. I mean, 1 Timothy is, consists of how we organize as a church, what it looks like, how it's to have elders and deacons, and what the characteristics of those elders and deacons look like that give the church its, uh, you know, oversight. It's his word that guides and directs us. It's not just pulling it out of thin air. No, Jesus continues to lead us for what we are called to do, who we are, and how we are to organize. It's always his word. I think one of the reasons why we give up on the church so much is because the church has given up on the word of Jesus. It has lost sight that Jesus is the leader. You know, and let me tell you something, from, from in my shoes, you know, this isn't a big church, but you can easily, in my shoes, think pretty highly of yourself, and this is not even a big church. Think about having 250, 500, 1,000 people looking at you saying, teach me, let me know. Do you know what that can do for someone like me, the temptation that it is for me to think, yes, you listen to me. It's a temptation that all pastors experience. And that temptation is to believe that you are in charge. No. When pastors fall into that, yes, no wonder people give up on the church. But what we see in John 21, Jesus says, I'm the captain now. I'm the captain. You listen to me. That's a reference from a movie. Some of you get picked it up. <laughs> I'm the captain now. Jesus is leading. 
But we believe in the church because Jesus is the one that's in charge. We believe in the church because Jesus is uniquely present. And thirdly, we believe in the church because Jesus is feeding his church continually. Remember what happens to the disciples when they come to shore? Verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. In the midst of their labors, in the midst of their toil, in the midst of the mission that Jesus has given them, he invites his church to feed. He wants them to find nourishment, to continue in the task that he has given them. And this he does through fish and bread. I do not hesitate to tell you that this meal alludes, certainly, to another meal that Jesus gave his disciples to practice in the church. It's the meal that we in the church call the Lord's Supper. Now, there's no connection between the fish and the bread. There's bread and there's fish, but it's a similar parallel. And John is getting us to see that a part of the church is the nourishment that Jesus continues to provide the church through his Lord's Supper. He's with the church. He's leading the church, and he's feeding the church. And you might be going, well, what is the Lord's Supper, and how does it bring us nourishment to us right here and right now? Very briefly, I'm not going into a full sermon on the Lord's Supper and the significance of it. We do it every week. But let me just reconnect you with why it is so significant and why it is nourishing. In this practice of the Lord's Supper, what we find is the representation of a holy God finding a sacrificial substitute in a holy substitute. That substitute is Jesus Christ himself. His body broken for the broken. Sinful. His blood shed for those whose blood need to be shed because of their sin. Jesus, a perfect substitutionary sacrifice going on our behalf before, for his people and dying the death that they deserved so that those people might be welcomed into the presence of a holy God. So when we take the bread and when we drink the wine, we are remembering his death, a significant death for us, a death that brings us back to God, a death that brings us reconciliation with our creator, the forgiveness of sins, the union of us with Christ. It is his body, it is his blood that we take. And we unite ourselves to him. My friends, this brings us nourishment for these reasons. We forget so often that we have been made right with God through Jesus. We sin. We yell at our spouse. We look at something we're not supposed to. And the lie, it might be us, it might be our conscience, it might be devil. The lie that comes into our mind is, God doesn't love you. You know God hates you, right? That, that comes into our mind. But when we take his body and his blood, what we are doing is we're nourishing ourselves to fight that lie. Yes, I have sinned again. 
But Christ's sacrifice, his body broken for me, his blood shed for me, and in taking it, eating it, reminds me, no, that is a lie. Yes, I have sinned, but I am still right with my creator. I am still right with God because of Christ. And it nourishes us. It enables us to fight those lies. It's also nourishing because of this. Not only are we taking it by ourselves, we're taking it with one another. We don't take it by ourselves in our bedrooms with Oreos or Coke, as some churches have done. I kid you not, Oreos and Cokes. No, we take it together. And this is a symbolic act that demonstrates to us, not only have you been united, but your brothers and sisters have been united, and you all partake together the body of Christ. So that when you look to your right and look to your left, you know our God is a great God who not only has redeemed me, but he's redeemed them. Put Peter, Nathan, Thomas, and the other disciples there with all their faults, and they can look at each other and go, wow, what a great God. What a great family that I have. We are a strange group, but I wouldn't want it any other way. Jesus welcomes us to his table to feed on him, to find nourishment, and he does it continually. I don't know about you, but um, this is very, very much part of me. And if you ever want to schedule a lunch with me, let me just tell you this. It better be before 1230. If it ain't by 1230, um, I'm probably eating before and I'm just going to sit with you. Because this weird phenomenon takes over my body. My body starts to feel light. My pulse starts to rate, I be, uh, race. I become irritable, quick-tempered. It's a syndrome called hangriness. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before. But at 12.30, if I don't have food in my belly, I become hangry, irritable, quick-tempered. It's not fun. I think there's a lot of similarities to those who will not come to the church to feed on the body and the blood of Christ. There's a lot of irritability, quick-tempered, prone to sin, because they are not eating the food that Jesus provides through his church. Christians can become hangry, and it can look all sorts of different ways. And I think churches can do this as well. The church that I grew up in, I think they did it once every four once every three months and that at Sunday night. And so a long time in my life, I went without feeding on the body and blood of Christ. Hangriness reared its ugly head in my life. But in feeding on the body and blood of Christ, in finding nourishment from what it signifies and what it represents and what it seals for us, we become satisfied. We don't race. We become at peace with God and our brothers. So my friends, in partaking in this meal in just a short time, come expectant that the Lord will satisfy your spiritual hunger. Come expectant that he will feed you and that he will show himself in ways that you need. Come grateful. Come hopeful. At our church, we regularly recite the Apostles' Creed, and some of you have memorized it, and that is a good and beautiful thing. But near the end of the Apostles' Creed, there is a strange line that perhaps you've never fully embraced. You've just recited it. The line goes like this. I believe in the Holy Catholic 
church, the communion of saints. Perhaps right now and in this moment, you're wondering, do I believe this? Maybe you've experienced horrific church experiences. Look, I don't blame you that if this is you, it is very difficult for you to believe in the church. But here's the thing. I think you should believe in the church. And you should believe in the church because Jesus is uniquely present in his church. He reveals himself in ways that you would never see if you were outside the church. Jesus is leading his church. It's not individuals. It's Jesus leading his church through his word. And the church must submit to that word or else you leave that church. And Jesus feeds the church through his body and his blood. Believe in the church for these reasons. Because Jesus is present. Jesus is leading. And Jesus is feeding. Would you believe? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the ways that you have been faithful to your word, your word in John 21, for the ways that you have indeed been present in our church and in the churches that I've been in in my life. Yes, Lord, I know that they're not all perfect churches. None of them are. But my experience, and Lord willing, the experience of my friends in here, is that indeed you are present. Indeed, you are leading. And you are feeding us. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to give us wisdom at this church for how we can follow these realities, how we can lean in towards one another, how we can follow your word, trusting you that indeed that people come in here and they recite the Apostles' Creed, they say, absolutely, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church because you are here. Or may we be a church that does that. 